Chapter One, Part One of Industrial Biography Ironworkers and Toolmakers by Samuel Smiles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Clive Catterall. Iron and Civilization, Part One. Iron is not only the soul of every other manufacture, but the mainspring, perhaps, of civilized society. Francis Horner. Were the use of iron lost among us, we should in a few ages be unavoidably reduced to the wants and ignorance of the ancient savage Americans. So that he who first made known the use of that contemptible mineral may be truly styled the father of arts and the author of plenty. John Locke When Captain Cook and the early navigators first sailed into the South Seas on their voyages of discovery, one of the things that struck them with most surprise was the avidity which the natives displayed for iron. "'Nothing would go down with our visitors,' said Cook, "'but metal, and iron was their beloved article. A nail would buy a good-sized pig, and on one occasion the navigator bought some four hundred pounds weight of fish for a few wretched knives improvised out of an old hoop. For iron tools, said Captain Carteret, we might have purchased everything upon the Free Will Islands that we could have brought away. A few pieces of old iron hoop presented to one of the natives threw him into an ecstasy little short of distraction. At Otaheite the people were generally found well behaved and honest, but they were not proof against the fascinations of iron. Captain Cook says that one of them, after resisting all other temptations, was at length ensnared by the charms of a basket of nails. Another lurked about for several days, watching the opportunity to steal a coal-rake. The navigators found they could pay their way from island to island merely with scraps of iron, which were as useful for the purpose as gold coins would have been in Europe. The drain, however, being continuous, Captain Cook became alarmed at finding his currency almost exhausted and he relates his joy on recovering an old anchor which the French Captain Bougainville had lost at Bola Bola, on which he felt as an English banker would do, after a severe run upon him for gold, when suddenly placed in possession of a fresh store of bullion. The avidity for iron displayed by these poor islanders will not be wondered at when we consider that whoever among them was so fortunate as to obtain possession of an old nail immediately became a man of greater power than his fellows, and assumed the rank of capitalist. An Otaheitan chief, says Cook, who had got two nails in his possession, received no small emolument by letting out the use of them to his neighbours, for the purpose of boring holes when their own methods failed, or were thought too tedious. The native methods referred to by Cook were of a very clumsy sort the principal tools of the Otaheitans being of wood, stone, and flint. Their adzes and axes were of stone. The gouge most commonly used by them was made out of the bone of a human forearm. Their substitute for a knife was a shell, or a bit of flint or jasper. A shark's tooth, fixed to a piece of wood, served for an auger, a piece of coral for a file, and the skin of a stingray for a polisher. Their saw was made of jagged fish's teeth fixed upon a convex piece of hardwood, 
Their weapons were of a similarly rude description. Their clubs and axes were headed with stone, and their lances and arrows were tipped with flint. Fire was another agency employed by them, usually in boat-building. Thus the New Zealanders, whose tools were also of stone, wood, or bone, made their boats of the trunks of trees hollowed out by fire. The stone implements were fashioned, Captain Cook says, by rubbing one stone upon another until brought to the required shape. But after all, they were found very inefficient for their purpose. They soon became blunted and useless, and the laborious process of making new tools had to be begun again. The delight of the islanders at being put in possession of a material which was capable of taking a comparatively sharp edge and keeping it may therefore readily be imagined. And hence the remarkable incidents to which we have referred in the experience of the early voyagers. In the minds of the natives, iron became the representative of power, efficiency, and wealth, and they were ready almost to fall down and worship their new tools, esteeming the axe as a deity, offering sacrifices to the saw, and holding the knife in especial veneration. In the infancy of all nations, the same difficulties must have been experienced for want of tools before the arts of smelting and working in metals had become known. And it is not improbable that the Phoenician navigators, who first frequented our coasts, found the same avidity for bronze and iron existing among the poor Wodestain Britons, who flocked down to the shore to see their ships and exchange food and skins with them, that Captain Cook discovered more than two thousand years later among the natives of Otaheite and New Zealand. For the tools and weapons found in ancient burying places in all parts of Britain clearly show that these islands also have passed through the epoch of stone and flint. There was recently exhibited at Crystal Palace a collection of ancient European weapons and implements placed alongside a similar collection of articles brought from the South Seas. And they were in most respects so much alike that it was difficult to believe that they did not belong to the same race and period, instead of being the implements of races sundered by half a globe and living at periods more than two thousand years apart. Nearly every weapon in the one collection had its counterpart in the other, the mauls or celts of stone, the spearheads of flint or jasper, the arrowheads of flint or bone, and the saws of jagged stone, showing how human ingenuity under like circumstances, had resorted to like expedients. It would also appear that the ancient tribes in these islands, like the New Zealanders, used fire to hollow out their larger boats, several specimens of this kind of vessel having been recently dug up in the valleys of Witham and the Clyde, some of the latter from under the very streets of modern Glasgow. Their smaller boats, or coracles, were made of osiers interwoven, covered with hides, and rigged with leathern sails and thong tackle. It will readily be imagined that anything like civilization, as at present understood, must have been next to impossible under such circumstances. Miserable indeed, says Carlyle, was the condition of the aboriginal savage, glaring fiercely from under his fleece of hair, which, with the beard, reached down to his loins, and hung round them like a matted cloak the rest of his body sheeted in its thick, natural fell. He loitered in the sunny places of the forest, living on wild fruits, 
or, as the ancient Caledonians, squatted himself in morasses, lurking for his bestial or human prey. Without implements, without arms, save the ball of heavy flint, to which, that his sole possession and defence might not be lost, he had attached a long cord of plaited thongs, thereby recovering as well as hurling it with deadly, unerring skill. The injunction given to man to replenish the earth and subdue it could not possibly be fulfilled with implements of stone. To fell a tree with a flint hatchet would occupy the labour of a month, and to clear a small patch of ground for purpose of culture would require the combined efforts of a tribe. For the same reason dwellings could not be erected, and without dwellings domestic tranquillity, security, culture and refinement, especially in a rude climate, were all but impossible. Mr. Emerson well observes that the effect of a house is immense on human tranquillity, power and refinement. A man in a cave or a camp, a nomad, dies with no more estate than the wolf or the horse leaves. But so simple a labour as a house being achieved, his chief enemies are kept at bay. He is safe from the teeth of wild animals, from frost, sunstroke and weather, and fine faculties begin to yield their fine harvest. Inventions and arts are born, manners and social beauty and delight. But to build a house which would serve for shelter, for safety and for comfort, in a word as a home for the family which is the nucleus of society, better tools than those of stone were absolutely indispensable. Hence most of the early European tribes were nomadic, first hunters, wandering about from place to place like the American Indians after the game, then shepherds, following the herds of animals, which they had learnt to tame, from one grazing ground to another, living upon their milk and flesh, and clothing themselves in their skins held together by leathern thongs. It was only when implements of metal had been invented that it was possible to practice the art of agriculture with any considerable success. Then tribes would cease from their wanderings and begin to form settlements, homesteads, villages and towns. An old Scandinavian legend thus curiously illustrates this last period. There was a giantess whose daughter one day saw a husbandman ploughing in his field. She ran and picked him up with her finger and thumb, put him and his plough and oxen into her apron, and carried them to her mother, saying, Mother, what sort of beetle is this that I have found wriggling in the sand? But the mother said, Put it away, my child. We must be gone out of this land, for these people will dwell in it. M. Warsai of Copenhagen, who has been followed by other antiquaries, has even gone so far as to divide the natural history of civilization into three epochs, according to the character of the tools used in each. The first was the stone period, in which the implements chiefly used were sticks, bones, stones and flints. The next was the bronze period, distinguished by the introduction and general use of a metal composed of copper and tin requiring a comparatively low degree of temperature to smelt it, and render it capable of being fashioned into weapons, tools, and implements. To make which, however, indicated a great advance in experience, sagacity, and skill in the manipulation of metals. With tools of bronze, 
to which considerable hardness could be given, trees were felled, stones hewn, houses and ships built, and agriculture practised with comparative facility. Last of all came the iron period, when the art of smelting and working that most difficult but widely diffused of the minerals was discovered, from which point the progress made in all the arts of life has been of the most remarkable character. Although Mr. Wright rejects this classification as empirical, because the periods are not capable of being clearly defined, and all the three kinds of implements are found to have been used at or about the same time, there is, nevertheless, reason to believe that it is, on the whole, well-founded. It is doubtless true that implements of stone continued in use long after those of bronze and iron had been invented, arising most probably out of the dearness and scarcity of articles of metal. But when the art of smelting and working in iron and steel had sufficiently advanced, the use of stone, and afterwards of bronze tools and weapons, altogether ceased. The views of M. Worsai and the other continental antiquarians who follow his classification have indeed received remarkable confirmation of late years by the discoveries which have been made in the beds of most of the Swiss lakes. It appears that a subsidence took place in the waters of Lake Zurich in the year 1854, laying bare considerable portions of its bed. The adjoining proprietors proceeded to enclose the new land, and began by erecting permanent dikes to prevent the return of the waters. While carrying on the works, several rows of stakes were exposed, and on digging down the labourers turned up a number of pieces of charred wood, stones blackened by fire, utensils, bones, and other articles, showing that at some remote period a number of human beings had lived over the spot in dwellings supported by stakes driven into the bed of the lake. The discovery having attracted attention, explorations were made at other places, and it was shortly found that there was scarcely a lake in Switzerland which did not yield similar evidence of the existence of an ancient lacustrine or lake-dwelling population. Numbers of their tools and implements were brought to light, stone axes and saws, flint arrowheads, bone needles and such like, mixed with the bones of wild animals slain in the chase, pieces of old boats, portions of twisted branches, bark and rough planking of which their dwellings had been formed, the latter still bearing the marks of rude tools by which they had been laboriously cut. In the most ancient or lowest series of deposits, no traces of metal, either of bronze or iron, were discovered, and it is most probable that these lake-dwellers lived in as primitive a state as the South Sea Islanders discovered by Captain Cook, and that the huts over the water in which they lived resembled those found in Papua and Borneo, and the islands of the Solomon group to this day. These aboriginal Swiss lake-dwellers seem to have been succeeded by a race of men using tools, implements, and ornaments of bronze. In some places the remains of this bronze period directly overlay those of the stone period, showing the latter to have been the most ancient. But in others the village sites are altogether distinct. The articles with which the metal implements are intermixed show that considerable progress has been made in the useful arts. The potter's wheel had been introduced, agriculture had begun, and wild animals had given place to tame ones. The abundance of bronze also shows that commerce must have existed to a certain extent, 
for tin, which enters into its composition, is a comparatively rare metal, and must necessarily have been imported from other European countries. The Swiss antiquarians are of opinion that the men of bronze suddenly invaded and extirpated the men of flint, and that at some still later period another stronger and more skilful race, supposed to have been Celts from Gaul, came armed with iron weapons, to whom the men of bronze succumbed, or with whom, more probably, they gradually intermingled. When iron, or rather steel, came into use, its superiority in affording a cutting edge was so decisive that it seems to have supplanted bronze almost at once, the latter metal continuing to be employed only for the purpose of making scabbards or sword-handles. Shortly after the commencement of the Iron Age, the lake habitations were abandoned, the only settlement of this later epoch yet discovered being at Tien, or Lake Neufchatel. And it is a remarkable circumstance, showing the great antiquity of the lake dwellings, that they are not mentioned by any of the Roman historians. That iron should have been one of the last of the metals to come into general use is partly accounted for by the circumstance that iron, though one of the most generally diffused of minerals, never presents itself in a natural state except in meteorites, and that to recognise its ores and then to separate the metal from its matrix demands the exercise of no small amount of observation and invention. Persons unacquainted with minerals would be unable to discover the slightest affinity between the rough ironstone as brought up from the mine and the iron or steel of commerce. To unpractised eyes they would seem to possess no properties in common, and it is only after subjecting the stone to severe processes of manufacture that usable metal can be obtained from it. The effectual reduction of the ore requires an intense heat, maintained by artificial methods such as furnaces and blowing apparatus but it is principally in combination with other elements that iron is so valuable when compared with other metals. Thus, when combined with carbon in varying proportions, substances are produced so different, but each so valuable, that they might almost be regarded in the light of distinct metals, for example as cast iron and cast and bar steel. The various qualities of iron, enabling it to be used for purposes so opposite as a steel pen and a railroad, the needle of a mariner's compass and an armstrong gun, a surgeon's lancet and a steam engine, the mainspring of a watch and an iron ship, a pair of scissors and a naismith hammer, a lady's earrings and a tubular bridge. The variety of purposes to which iron is thus capable of being applied renders it more use to mankind than all the other metals combined. Unlike iron, gold is found pure and in an almost workable state, and at an early period in history it seems to have been much more plentiful than iron or steel. But gold was unsuited for the purposes of tools, and would serve for neither a saw, a chisel, an axe, nor a sword, whilst tempered steel could answer all these purposes. Hence we find the early warlike nations making the backs of their swords of gold or copper, and economising their steel to form the cutting edge. This is illustrated by many ancient Scandinavian weapons in the museum at Copenhagen, which indicate the greatest parsimony in the use of steel at a period when both gold and copper appear to have been comparatively abundant. The knowledge of smelting and working in iron, 
like most other arts, came from the East. Iron was especially valued for purposes of war, of which, indeed, it was regarded as the symbol, being called Mars by the Romans. We find frequent mention of it in the Bible. One of the earliest notices of the metal is in connection with the conquest of Judea by the Philistines. To complete the subjugation of the Israelites, their conquerors made captive all the smiths of the land, and carried them away. The Philistines felt their hold on the country was insecure so long as the inhabitants possessed the means of forging weapons. Hence there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. But the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share and his coulter, and his axe and his mattock. At a later period, when Jerusalem was taken by the Babylonians, one of their first acts was to carry the smiths and other craftsmen captives to Babylon. Deprived of their armourers, the Jews were rendered comparatively powerless. It was the knowledge of the art of iron-forging which laid the foundation of the once great empire of the Turks. Gibbon relates that these people were originally despised as slaves of the powerful Khan of the Gugan. They occupied certain districts of the mountain ridge in the centre of Asia, called Emmaus, Kaf, and Altai, which yielded iron in large quantities. This metal the Turks were employed by the Khan to forge for his use in war. A bold leader arose among them, who persuaded the ironworkers that the arms they forged for their masters might in their own hands become the instruments of freedom. Sallying forth from their mountains, they set up their standard, and their weapons soon freed them. For centuries after, the Turkish nation continued to celebrate the event of their liberation by an annual ceremony, in which a piece of iron was heated in the fire, and a smith's hammer was successively handled by the prince and his nobles. We can only conjecture how the art of smelting iron was discovered, who first applied fire to the ore and made it plastic, who discovered fire itself and its uses in metallurgy. No one can tell. Tradition says that the metal was discovered through the accidental burning of a wood in Greece. Mr. Mushet thinks it more probable that the discovery was made on the conversion of wood into charcoal for culinary or chamber purposes. If a mass of ore, he says, accidentally dropped into the middle of a burning pile during a period of neglect, or during the existence of a thorough draught, a mixed mass, partly earthy, partly metallic, would be obtained, possessing ductility and extension under pressure. But if the conjecture is pushed still further, and we suppose that the ore was not an oxide, but rich in iron, magnetic, or spicular, the result would in all probability be a mass of perfectly malleable iron. I have seen this fact illustrated in the roasting of a species of ironstone, which was united with a considerable mass of bituminous matter. After a high temperature had been excited in the interior of the pile, plates of malleable iron of a tough and flexible nature were formed and under circumstances where there was no fuel but that furnished by the ore itself. The metal once discovered, many attempts would be made to give to that which had been the effect of accident a more unerring result. The smelting of ore in an open heap of wood or charcoal being found tedious and wasteful, as well as uncertain, would naturally lead to the invention of a furnace with the object of keeping the ore surrounded as much as possible with fuel while the process of conversion into iron was going forward. 
the low conical furnaces employed at this day by some of the tribes of central and southern america are perhaps very much the same in character as those adopted by the early tribes of all countries where iron was first made small openings at the lower end of the cone to admit the air and a larger orifice at the top would with charcoal be sufficient to produce the requisite degree of heat for the reduction of the ore to this the foot-blast was added as still used in ceylon and in india and afterwards the water-blast as employed in spain where it is known as the catalan forge along the coast of the mediterranean and in some parts of america it is worthy of remark that the ruder the method employed for the reduction of the ore the better the quality of the iron usually is where the art is little advanced only the most tractable ores are selected and as charcoal is the only fuel used the quality of the metal is almost invariably excellent the ore being long exposed to the charcoal fire and the quantity made small the result is a metal having many of the qualities of steel capable of being used for weapons or tools after a comparatively small amount of forging dr livingstone speaks of the excellent qualities of the iron made by the african tribes of the zambezi who refuse to use ordinary english iron which they consider rotten Duchailu also says of the fans that in making their best knives and arrowheads they will not use european or american iron greatly preferring their own the celebrated woots or steel of india made in little cakes of only about two pounds weight possesses qualities which no european steel can surpass out of this material the famous damascus sword blades were made and its use for so long a period is perhaps one of the most striking proofs of the ancient civilization of india end of chapter one part one